Hello and welcome to Altamar, where every other Friday we together navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. Peter, we all watch the Copa America and the Euro Cup and the Olympics are set to begin soon. So let's talk about world sports and the money behind them, the overworked athletes, the corporations and even the countries that control them. It really seems like every day there is a new controversy surrounding sports and every sport is different, but there's increasing commonalities. There's a huge influx of money, sponsors desperately seeking new voices, athletes that keep getting injured, out of control corruption and political competition. So as sports grow and become more and more sophisticated, there's a huge power grab by countries, by companies, by investors, even the fans and the athletes themselves. We're going to talk about this uh, with our good friend and sports expert, Nick Sprague, to sort all of this out. Mooney, it's no secret that the professional sports have transformed impressively in the past years with so much sports on television. You can just see it every day. And so there's these new opportunities, but they also just generate scandals and political tensions and they attract outsides, pretty shady deals. And let's just remember, if you close your eyes, there's the FIFA multiple corruption indictments, the U.S. Gymnastics Association sexual abuse tragedy, the growing role of shady investors and developers, and all these tensions have just deepened and broadened over the COVID era, where myriads of cancellations and negotiations and power struggles have upended the entire industry. And as usually happens with complicated issues, geopolitics are becoming a larger part of the conversation. It's all centered on China again, and both its role as the largest consumer market and most aggressive sports diplomat. And recent examples of China's involvement in world sports include human rights and internal politics that caused the Chinese ban on NBA games after the Houston Rockets general manager supported Hong Kong protesters and other issues like the fight between Francis Griezmann with his sponsor Huawei over the Uyghur issue. And even India had a border conflict, a border conflict with China over sports sponsorship. And there's also the issue of further Chinese expansion in Africa as they build a bunch of stadiums in their so-called stadium diplomacy. Well, yeah, I just I, I agree, but I have an issue with your word. It's you know all about China. If you just look around the world, take a look at the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states have become these incredible powerhouse actors in the global sports industry, creating waves. When, for example, Saudi Arabia submitted a failed bid for Newcastle United, and Qatar's footprints are everywhere as the owners of broadcaster B in sports, the unpopular host of the next World Cup, and the owner of big name Paris Saint-Germain, one of the great soccer teams in France. And Gulf states are now largely responsible for the expansion of the global sports industry. And if you take a look at the U.S. along with England, but the U.S. has become this major player holding such a significant piece of the advertising and the negotiations and the consumer pie. And of course, we need to touch on the athletes themselves. And in just the last few weeks, we've heard about multiple issues. The Shikari Richardson ousting from the Japan Olympics for smoking weed. We've watched the harrowing collapse and heart attack of the overworked Danish midfield Christian Eriksson in the recent Euro Cup against Finland. Multiple injuries among NBAs, tennis athletes retiring from Grand Slam tournaments over mental health concerns, and the sheer difficulty and all the complications surrounding the Japan Olympics. 
Thea will take a good look now at women in sports. It's an important issue in the developing world and in wealthy countries and talk a little bit about their challenges, the changes they face and the future opportunities that are opening to them. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So sports are an industry that's very close to my heart. I'm a former tennis player who came to the U.S. on a tennis scholarship for college. And my dad is also a professional volleyball coach in Europe. So sports are really something I grew up with, and I've seen these issues of corruption and ineptitude firsthand. So, But what I want to take a look at today is something that's often swept under the table by powerful teams and federations is the systemic abuse of young athletes and often teenage women. It happens a lot in the developing world where these abuses often go unreported and unnoticed. Recently, the president of Afghanistan's soccer federation was barred for life by FIFA for sexually abusing players on the women's national team. The president of Haiti's soccer federation was also permanently banned after he was accused of raping players as young as 14 and keeping them as child slaves. But it happens everywhere. I mean, we've all followed the traumatic news of Lawrence Nassar, the American gymnastics doctor, who was jailed for life for preying on hundreds of young female athletes. And just days ago, a dozen female water polo players in California reached a $14 million settlement after accusing a coach of sexually abusing them when they were minors. So sports, whether professional or in the U.S., college sports, are an industry that's worth more than $650 billion. And greed is not good. The greed for more money, power, and success leads coaches and other influential figures such as manager or federation bosses to do truly unfathomable things. Systemic corruption and money laundering, which are common practices in sports, can break apart players' careers, team success, and even an entire sport. And trust me, I've seen this happen in in volleyball. It's happening right now. But sexual abuse can destroy human beings and especially young, vulnerable women and, and men as well. But I want to hear from you. I mean, does this systemic mistreatment anger you too, like it does me? What should be done about it? Tweet at Altimer Podcast and let us know. As Taya just showed us, it's a world full of possibility, but also of real, real human need and human problems. But who's making the money and where are the powerhouses behind it? And what does this mean for the future of sports? Those are all questions we're going to ask our good friend, Nick Sprague. Nick is the owner of a sports biotech and data science leader called Oreco, a company that works with elite athletes and teams from around the world on optimizing athletic performance. Nick was the head of special projects for Inter Miami's football club and intimately involved in the high-profile expansion of the team's launch in 2020. He's also the chairman of board of directors of Love Football, a global NGO who partners with impoverished communities to build their own safe spaces to play. Nick has published several works on the beautiful game, including developing and writing the original concept of the documentary film, The Two Escobars, an official selection of the 2010 Cannes Film Festival. Nick Sprague, welcome back to Altamar. Thank you, Peter and Mooney. Awesome to be here again. So let me just begin really broadly. I mean, it's clear that the world of sports is undergoing this tremendous transformation and we've divided Mooney and ourselves in our introduction. You know, we talked about a few buckets, the geopolitics, the business, the athletes themselves. Let's break it up into pieces. And as we always do on Altamar, let's break it up. Let's start with the geopolitics. And I guess that means also we're going to talk a little bit about money because geopolitics is money. 
sports are more and more part of the portfolio of large actors, China, the Gulf states. And so what does that mean for the industry? What are some of the challenges and what does this mean? Is there any bright spots? Well, I think we can look to real life examples to maybe illustrate it. And I I think about the English Premier League, Peter, which is the most globalized league in the world, both in terms of the nationality of its investors and in terms of its reach and how far it's distributed. And I think if you kind of walk through what has been the impact of all of this money, starting with kind of Russian oligarch money and U.S. private equity money, but then being bolstered by Chinese money, other Southeastern Asian money, either sovereign or non-sovereign, money coming in from Abu Dhabi, other places in the Middle East, there's been an undeniable impact in a positive way on quality, right? I think that once the money comes in, the first thing that the teams do is they turn around and they start spending it. So all this influx of cash, sovereign, non-sovereign, in the case of the English Premier League, starts getting pumped into players, pumped into coaches, pumped into the environment in and around those players and coaches, whether it's sports science and sports performance, or whether it's the quality of facilities that they're training and playing in, the quality of their media broadcast and their marketing. And it has undeniably created a far superior product on the field to what existed decades before or even a decade ago, right? So I think you say, what are the bright spots? Clearly, there's a bright spot in the terms of the impact on the quality of the product. The challenge... But I feel a butt coming. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, I think this comes down to how do you evaluate success, right? And I think that... There's much more that goes into the politics of a league and its fans than how good is the quality of the product we're watching on the field, right? And so I think one challenge is sustainability. With Chinese money in sport, for example, China had an incredible moment, an incredible moment in soccer, particularly in soccer, when number one said soccer was going to be a priority for China. And all of a sudden, you saw the, the, the bureaucracy and the private sector sort of rally around that, and they just started spending money. And I'm talking, I remember one of the transfer windows, it might have been January of 2017, China outspent the Premier League on bringing players into China. And they were buying properties and teams and leagues all over the, all over the world, investing in Atletico Madrid and, and you know, AC Milan, you know, huge, huge storied clubs buying up sports, media, entertainment properties. But then the politics changed and people realized there was too much money washing offshore and they decided to rein it all in. Right. And so a lot of the teams that were purchased or a lot of the properties that got purchased who thought they were about to get on the money train all of a sudden uh, were left a little bit high and dry and are now, you know, kind of weeding themselves off of it and figuring out what the next step is. So I think the sustainability aspect of it, Peter, is one of the main challenges. You come in and you make a commitment, but are you willing to continue to make that commitment over time? And that's a political question for a lot of the types of investors we're talking about. So let me ask you, because there's the flip side of the money coin is the 
the how much is generated by TV rights. And it just seems like the evolution of sports and, and even sports gaming, there's just so much of it. I mean, you can just see sports all the time in ways that I just don't remember even five years ago. And how has that changed the nature of how athletes interact and how sports interacts as a business? Well, we're all of us here are old enough to remember uh, not too long ago when the summertime was like a sports doldrum at least in the United States, most of the leagues were on break. The soccer leagues were on break. The NBA season had finished up. And by the time you got to August, people were so desperate for sports content that, you know, a, a channel like ESPN could put on the little league world series and a few million people would tune in to watch, you know, 12 year olds hitting a baseball, right? Like that's how, that's how desperate we were for content. And I think, as you say today, uh, that is the opposite of where we are. Now there's too much content to keep up with. And that's been this, this mix of globalization, technology, and where sports finds itself in this incredibly privileged position between this sea change that's taking place and the transition from cable television to streaming. And what's happened is that on both sides of that transition, and sometimes it's the same people sitting on both sides of that table, they have agreed that sports is the most important property either to saving my business model if I'm in the cable or network TV business or in launching my new business model if I'm in the streaming business. And so you have this incredible competition that's taking place between sort of old school and new school, between companies who are trying to figure out, like Disney, who have a foothold in both, have incredible streaming platform and things like ESPN Plus and, and Disney Plus, right? But then they also own brick and mortar like ESPN. And so they're sort of stuck in this place where they say, you know, in ABC, I need to have content to keep this business going, but I also need to have content to launch this. And sports has been reaping the benefits of that, Peter. We've been in a place where every year media rights, you know, if it's a quality property, media rights continue to grow up and up and up. And we don't see that slowing down right now. Nick, as long as I can remember, the U.S. has been the key international actor in the sports industry, maybe with the exception of soccer, but notably with the exception of soccer. Has this influence waned as other actors enter the fray? And then, then what about the UK that has traditionally been a strong player? Well, the answer is no. I think the US still has the incredibly privileged position of having a monopoly over four major sports, American football, baseball, uh, basketball, and hockey. And although there are other leagues around the world uh, where those sports are are played. None of them have ever tried to position themselves as competitors to the dominant U.S. league, and all of them right now exist more or less as a player production feeding into those dominant leagues. And so that that aspect of American grip over the large team sports, with the exception of soccer, as you mentioned, 
is still there and has arguably only grown over time. I think with Olympic sport, as college sports have gone through a weird moment in the last decade, where you can look to some examples and say, clearly college sport is losing prestige. I think that's had an impact on the Olympic sports and the model that the Olympic sport model, which really relied a lot on U.S. universities providing that scholarship incentive to athletes who competed in these individual sports outside of the context of the large team sports. And so I think you have seen in some of the Olympic-style sports, the U.S. has lost some of the more traditional dominance that it's had. But certainly in the major team sports, the U.S.'s influence has grown. And in soccer, to finish, private equity from the U.S., has invested heavily in the global game. So you still see the U.S. as a major stakeholder at the table. Oftentimes, it's the same owners of the large franchises in the U.S. who own some of the major uh, soccer teams and other sports teams in other leagues around the world. Everyone says, wherever you read about sports, that COVID has turned the world of sports upside down. So it's obvious that the empty stadiums were a huge change and a huge, huge impact. But what have been some of the other consequences of the COVID era? I think there's so much money coming into the game through media rights that people forgot how much money has been put into the live event part of sports. And I think COVID was a shocking reminder, even, even to a property like the NFL that has this, you know, 10 billion plus a year TV contracts, you would think if ever there was a sport that wouldn't have an issue with uh, having to having to focus on TV rights and not having the live experience, you'd think it would be American football. But the truth is that so many billions of dollars, oftentimes private capital, have been put into these facilities and to technologies to support the live experience, Moni, that COVID made that abundantly clear that either we need to have an ability to flex in and out in a more agile way as to whether we're going to be able to adapt to having fans in the stadium or not having fans in the stadium, or we need to change a little bit the focus of where we invest our time and energy and money. I'm sure that coming out of COVID, you are going to see some leagues similar to this idea of employees not going back to the office and working remote. You're going to see a lot of leagues are going to go asset light and they're going to say, does it really make sense for us to invest tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into, you know, hard infrastructure that's built around the live events ecosystem uh, if I know that I might not always be able to activate it? So I think that's that's one clear impact is you have the whole industry around live events rethinking what is their value proposition? Some cases, they'll do the exact same thing they were doing before. In other cases, they'll do things like move from being a live events platform catering to segments, a broader population, to being a live events platform catering more to an elite experience or a VIP experience, right? You'll see some of that. And then others will go asset light altogether. I think the second thing that happened is it exposed what was already happening in terms of fixture congestion. And fixture congestion is all of these leagues, 
federations, teams, media companies have been focused on creating more and more properties in order to feed this machine, which is the media rights machine that we talked about earlier. Because right now you can't get enough of sports. The streamers need it. The cable companies need it. You can't get enough of it. So everybody's been incentivized to produce more and more and more content, more competitions, provide more for the media rights to be able to distribute. What's happened is when COVID hits, all of a sudden you can't play for a few months and everybody's looking around saying, well, you're only getting my money if that product that I signed up for actually takes place. And so everything is being condensed into a short period of time. Everybody's playing tournaments that under other circumstances wouldn't even be played. I think we saw with Copa America this summer, the, the amount of, of politics and desperation there was to have to play that tournament to satisfy the broadcast rights holders and the sponsors to make sure that money came into the federation. There's a rush to play this, but you're piling on fixtures on top of fixtures on top of fixtures on top of fixtures and it inevitably leads to athletes can't keep up that's where i wanted to go next which is the whole issue of the rising concern about the athletes themselves i mean with all of these events and games and forced schedules and travel and all of that i mean what we've seen is so many incidents of injuries, but not only physical injuries, also mental health issues, which were raised recently by Nomi Osaka in tennis. And I mean, how, how do the athletes survive this push for more and more and more? It's an interesting battle that's taking place between those who are in the corner of athlete well-being and those who are in the corner of maximizing monetization opportunities for the leagues and the federations, right? In some cases, it's really interesting. And I think the NFL model, is the NBA model is very fascinating because the players actually get 50% of the revenue. So the players are also incentivized to bring in as much revenue as they possibly can because that money flows back directly into the players and to the salaries that the players are paid. And so there is taking place now a huge debate and what will eventually will settle on kind of you know an optimum level of saying how much is too much when is too much enough one of the things that covid has exposed is that the tools we have today for measuring the load on athletes is not always sufficient to be able to know how they're actually tolerating all this stuff. You know, you mentioned that I you know, have an interest in Orico and Orico has a unique proposition there around menstrual cycle planning and, and biomarker testing. Um, but it's, it's one of the few, if only objective ways to even look at how athletes are tolerating all this load that they're under. But there's no question, if you have an athlete who plays a, an elite soccer player playing in Europe from South America, and is not only playing two fixtures a week minimum in Europe to do with domestic league and then Champions League and then local cup competitions, but then is hopping on a plane and flying across the Atlantic, flying down to Argentina, landing, training, getting on a plane, flying to Bolivia, playing a World Cup qualifier, 
flying back to Argentina, playing another World Cup qualifier, then flying up to the coast of Colombia, playing another World Cup qualifier, and hopping on a plane and flying back to Europe and be expected to play that weekend. Right? There's clearly got to come a point where the players can no longer tolerate all of this load that is being inspected of them. And one of the, the challenges to this is that there's no cohesion among all those different players who are organizing these competitions. The interests of the English Premier League are very different from the interests of the South American Football Federation, right? And so you have a very difficult situation where the players are stuck in the middle, sometimes to their benefit because they're reaping the financial rewards, but eventually to their detriment because physically they're not going to be able to keep up with the demands of all of the increased competitions and traveling. Let me ask you, we had a great lunch a few weeks ago, and you were talking about the internal frictions, the, not only the cancel sponsorship, the diplomacy, the border conflicts, the boycotts, but but things like the internal frictions that, the, for example, this idea of the soccer super league that some some elite teams came up with, and was it was booed down within 24 hours. And how did these all of these stakeholders that you just described, the, the players versus the owners versus the media... How does that all shake out? And how do these internal frictions get resolved? It's a really interesting case. I think none of us really know how substantive the project was to begin with. But I think if you wanted to create a league with a different set of governance rules that was more focused on things like transparency or was more focused on things like anti-racism, uh, or was more focused on speaking to issues that in the current context don't get addressed very well, I think that there was certainly space to do something like that. I think the Super League in and of itself, it's hard to say you know, whether there was things like that driving or whether it was simply just, just a money play. Only those involved would really know. But I think the politics of it were what was most interesting. And I think about England and Brexit. If you look at the English Premier League, it is unquestionably, unquestionably dramatically improved from 20 years ago, from 10 years ago, from five years ago, and it is unquestionably the best league in the world. So if you are a British soccer fan, you have been in an incredibly privileged position these last two decades watching the most amazing soccer just get better and better and better in front of your eyes every day. And you've been the principal beneficiary of globalization of soccer and in particular bringing together, you know, bigger teams, uh, more powerful teams and having them compete against each other. England basically did a super league within England. They brought a ton of money on shore and they started investing. And now you have six, seven teams that are, of the top 20 biggest in the world. So you could say that this has already happened in some way in the England space. And yet, many of the English fans were the very first ones to stand up and protest the idea, the audacity that you would have big clubs get together, bring in more revenue, and create a product where those clubs would be competing against each other more often. And I think that's where the domestic politics of this are. What's going on, sports is still a ground-up phenomenon. 
you know, it's still of the people by the people. Sports is not a top-down phenomenon. If you look at where the athletes come from, where the expressions of sport come from, it comes from the bottom up. And the politics are still reflecting that fact. And you have plenty of incoherence in the way that sort of new globalist ideas and sport that in theory might be in the best interest of some, even within their own constituency, you have many who will fight against it because it doesn't match with the way that they see as their ideal expression of the sport, which they're still looking at from, it's my community, it's my country, it's my identity, it's the expression of who I am. And I want that to reflect something that's familiar to me. So speaking of identity, the Olympics, they've been around since 1896. Some people think they should be canceled forever. Very briefly, we're running out of time. We could talk about the Super League for another hour. (laughs) What is your view on the Olympics? I think that even if the athletes themselves don't always find themselves in the money on the Olympics, there is a massive industry that's built around it. And that industry, I would say, has continued to grow. I think the challenges that Olympic sport faces is the sports that don't have the dominant leagues, like we talked about, like hockey and basketball and soccer. What happens in between that four years, that four-year period of time between competition and competition? What are the athletes actually doing during that period of time? If you're a rights holder to Olympic sport, how are you activating that? How are you, you know, can you build a dynasty around Olympic sport the way that you can build a dynasty around the NBA because you have it rateably all the time every year with consistent access to it? So I think some of the challenges that the Olympics face are really that is that at the end of the day, sports is sports. And in today's world, sports is entertainment. So whatever you're bringing to the table, you better have an incredibly compelling value proposition because you're competing in a really, really, really crowded marketplace. And I think that's where, whether it's Olympic sport, whether it's you know new soccer leagues, even in the United States, we've seen upstart American football leagues who have had half a billion dollars in capitalization collapse in three months, right? The market is will punish you. You have to bring something that's compelling to the table in order to break through this clutter, which we're seeing this summer with all these leagues and teams and events, and how can you possibly keep up with it? So I think that's the challenge that the Olympics face. Every four years, they have their own pulpit, but how do you continue to build that connection with fans in between that period of time, especially when you're competing against leagues that can do that every year? in a very compelling and entertaining way. Nick Sprague, thank you for joining us again in Altamar. Thank you, guys. Peter, a lot to think about after this interview, the world of sports. We can do so many podcasts on this topic. But for now, we have to go. We ran out of time. But you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.